0: A podcast one production. Imagine you're a farmer. You grow wheat. You've tilled the soil. You've planted the seed. You've watched as they've sprouted and they've begun to grow toward the skies. You've hoped and you've prayed that you've had enough rain and not too much. That you'd have nice weather, but not too hot. And because you're in luck this year, all of that happened. It all went according to plan. And so now you have a nice fat crop of wheat. So you fire up the harvesting machine, and soon you've got bushels and bushels and bushels of grain. That's money right there in its purest form. Now, you have to pay to get your grain shipped to a granary 100 kilometers away. And when it arrives, it gets weighed. It's a mighty crop this year, and it gets graded. And you've been diligent. The weather's been good, so your wheat receives the highest possible grade. And so it commands the highest possible price. And now you sit and you wait for an offer on your grain. You don't have to wait very long. A grain merchant offers you a fair price for the whole crop. You handshake a deal, and then you wait. You're used to this part. As a farmer, you've always had to wait to get paid. As the grain snakes its way through the chain of commerce, going from middleman to middleman to reseller to reseller, never even leaving the granary as it changes hands. Finally, it goes to a processor, someone making wheat or finished goods like bread or pasta. And then finally, you get paid. You hope. The processor pays the reseller, who pays another reseller, who pays a middleman, who pays another middleman, who pays the grain merchant, who finally pays you. That whole process can take six months, half a year, waiting on payment for something that's already cost you a lot of money and a lot of time. And that's the best case. If somewhere in that chain, one of those middlemen encounters a problem-making payment, Perhaps they've overextended themselves in the futures market for grain or one of their clients has fallen on hard times. The whole chain falls apart. If any of these parties default, you never get paid. And that's just the way of it. You wear all of the risk in this transaction, even though you're the only one who actually invested money and time and a lot of effort to bring a physical product to the table. So in addition to praying for enough rain and good prices you also have to pray for the creditworthiness of everyone you do business with both directly and indirectly because if anyone purchasing your grain defaults on their payments you'll never see a dollar and all of a sudden even though you did all of the right things You're the one facing insolvency because you borrowed money for all the fertilizer, you've rented all the machinery, you've paid for grain storage, and now you have no money to pay for any of that, nor any promise of money. It's as if your crop has been stolen by bad credit. So, what if a blockchain could fix that? Mark Pesci, and welcome to the third episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We'll speak to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how things work, why they work, and when they don't. By the time we're finished, you should understand enough to make your own investment calls. You'll have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency investment. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? We can't answer these questions for you, but you'll learn which questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you'll want to receive. But cryptocurrencies, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain isn't even a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including agriculture. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new businesses. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. That's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks, stock markets, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business, and it will force businesses as old and established as agriculture to make way for it. When we come back, we'll talk to the founder of one of these new firms that's rewriting the book on agribusiness. Welcome back to Episode 3 of Cryptonomics. In this episode, we'll take a look at some of the ways blockchain is already transforming businesses and will soon touch nearly every aspect of our day-to-day lives. Blockchain-based businesses have been popping up everywhere, and although they don't make as much noise as Bitcoin, in the long term, they'll be far more important to our economy, and they're already here. Over the last few years that I've been working with the blockchain, it's been my pleasure to meet some true innovators, people committed to solving the hard problems. One of those is Emma Weston. Emma is the co-founder and CEO of AgriDigital. Emma, welcome to Cryptonomics.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: So, Emma... Tell me how you've managed to solve this problem that farmers have had using the blockchain.
1: Such a good question. So I was just listening to your intro, and I'm not too sure if I want to be a farmer anymore after that intro. It sounds super scary, and I am a farmer. So it was because I'm a farmer and my co-founder is a farmer that we began with the problems that are inherent in the story that you just outlined. Why don't farmers get paid for what they deliver when they deliver? Why can't buyers get access to just-in-time supply chain finance? Why are we having this liquidity crisis within supply chain? And what risks does it actually introduce to us as farmers, as supply chain participants, and as consumers? And that's really at the heart of what AgriDigital is looking to solve for. So we began this journey a few years ago. And I've got to say that we come very firmly from the problem space, from the domain of agriculture. So blockchain is not my native language. But when we started looking at emerging technology solutions that we could be using to solve problems around payment security, around risk in supply chain, we came across blockchain. And this gets to the heart of your question is how will this actually work in the context of agriculture? Will farmers actually adopt this technology and you know what problems is it really solving? So the way that we're using blockchain is to create digital assets that are faithful representations of physical assets. And then, so let me just break that down a little bit. It's a digital asset that represents a load of wheat, for example. We then have that load of wheat sitting in digital form on a blockchain that can then be traded between participants of that blockchain who are also participants of the supply chain. And the reason that this is such a good idea is because we can do things super fast on the blockchain that we can't do super fast in the real world. We can do things like exchange that asset in real time for payment in real time.
0: So if you're a farmer you present your grain, then that goes into the blockchain. There's a, an entry made in this ledger that says, okay, here's the farmer. He's got this many tons of grain in the ledger. If I'm now the purchaser and I want to buy it, it's not just a sort of handshake promise. I actually now have to present assets into the blockchain of equal value.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we either need to do an exchange on the blockchain or but we're also building out linkages to existing supply chain and payment systems because we're going through a maturity cycle here. This is not going to be something where we go from day one, I'm on the farm dealing with things the way I've always dealt, or I'm a trader, you know, sitting at my desk. Um, I'm an elevator, you know, sitting in the country somewhere receiving grain. We've got to have a way of transitioning. So, what we would expect is that buyers would either have a digital asset themselves that they would exchange. Now, that could actually actually be, this is what's super exciting, that could actually be a load of barley, for example, that just has the equal value to the load of wheat. It could be a cryptocurrency, so some kind of store of value, which is either a physical asset itself or is in fact a digital asset. And these can be exchanged interchangeably without an intermediary at very low cost and very quickly.
0: So now, what you've done is you've created a marketplace so that I can either get money or some some form of money, whether it's a cryptocurrency or uh, something that's a verified bank check, whatever it might yep. be for that or I could have uh, barley or I could even perhaps trade it for labor. But what we've done is we've now got this complete fluidity so that when I transfer the grain, I'm being paid for the grain in that moment.
1: Absolutely. And not just the way of having a look at an immediate transfer, but actually looking at the terms of that transfer. So, with a blockchain, we can create digital assets that are programmable. We can put constraints within that asset, such as it can only be transferred at this time within this location to this type of entity or purchaser. Um, This gives us constraints, but also freedom within the same technology, which I think is awesome.
0: So this means that then I could say, look, it can only be transferred within a hundred kilometers of where I am now, or it can only be sold inside of Australia, or those kinds of things.
1: It can only go into an organic supply chain. It can only be sold to this um, set of purchases that belong to these countries because there's a trade embargo on particular countries. You know, these are things that create, um, you know, rules and enforceability just within a technology. And I think that's really pushing the boundaries.
0: Those are also the fiddly bits that are quite expensive if you have to do them manually.
1: Not only expensive, but incredibly time consuming and quite often the point of failure as well. So we're looking for where we can cure for points of failure for, you know, manual, uh, time consuming, documentation heavy, regulation heavy uh, events and be able to codify those in ways that makes this simple. What I'm saying is, we're trying to remove friction. We're trying to make everything simpler, easier, and more secure.
0: Okay, so I understand how this is going to work if I'm growing some grain some barley or some wheat. Are there other examples in agriculture where we would be needing the same sort of facility?
1: There are actually solutions that have come into the supply chain to deal with this problem of counterparty risk, to deal with settlement issues. Um, And so in the grains industry, at least in Australia, we're seeing... uh, traders take on some of that risk and pay growers you know, earlier, right? That makes them more attractive to that grower to deal with rather than having to wait to get paid. But that still could be 14 or 30 days. However, in certain parts of the industry, uh, horticulture, aquaculture, viticulture, we're seeing quite extended payment terms. And once again, as you said, all that risk being borne by the farmer. I'll actually kind of throw something else in there as well. It doesn't actually have to be an agri-commodity. We can actually develop these digital assets to be very generic, uh, to be able to be used by other industries, be that the mining industry, the resource industry, uh, those who are selling uh, intellectual property, for example, is also really interesting on a blockchain.
0: Okay, so we now have this idea that you can create a blockchain that facilitates a market so that people can be paid immediately for the services or the property, the assets that they're providing. Is there a sense of here. I mean, we're talking now, how large is the market just in terms of just agricultural trading just in Australia?
1: So, if we're looking at agricultural trade in Australia, um, let's just focus in on the grains industry because it's a big enough number. That's a $9 billion number. Um, If we're looking at supply chains globally, we're talking $17 trillion. I mean, we're not going to be uh, scared by those numbers but the opportunity is huge
0: right but we're already seeing there's a factor of about 2000 between what you're saying just the size of agriculture in australia and the possible size as blockchains become this integrated mechanism for both keeping the books balanced proving ownership but also proving that you can have a market to transfer ownership that this could literally transform a 17 trillion dollar economy
1: that's the prize
0: Emma, thank you very much for joining us on Cryptonomics.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: Emma Weston focused on a real problem, ensuring farmers get paid for their crops. AgriDigital created a blockchain that became a register of assets, a ledger. And in a wonderful way, that brings us all the way back to our beginnings in episode one with that very first bit of writing from Sumer 6,000 years ago, a ledger of agricultural assets. Keeping track of grain, how much of it, who owns it, that's not a new problem. The blockchain provides a new solution, one that allows parties who have no reason to trust one another or rather no way to know whether the other party is worthy. ...to allow them to trade in complete confidence. And this idea of an asset registry... ...remember, Bitcoin is not really a lot more than a ledger of who owns what Bitcoins. This asset registry is both at the core of what a blockchain does... ...and provides a foundation for a new way of working with assets... Whenever there's something that has great value and people are agreed that it has value, there's a need to keep careful track of it, whether that's bitcoins or grain or land. Now, in Australia or in America, when you want to figure out who owns a piece of property, you go to the lands registry and look up the title for the land. That's one of the things we got right, because when you don't have clear title to land, It's impossible to get credit to build anything on it. And worse, it means someone can actually try to steal your land. And that's more than just a hypothetical problem. In many countries, land titles are poorly kept. It's a combination maybe of disasters and revolutions and probably more than a little bit of corruption. Anyone with access to a land registry could hack that registry and effectively give themselves someone else's beachfront property. It means that a family could have been on the same plot for hundreds of years, but lose it in a moment with no real way to prove that it was ever theirs. If someone else wants that land, they can claim title on that property. They can force the family off that land unless they wanted to prove their title in the court system. And that's far more expensive than most people can afford. Far more expensive because there's no title to refer to. There's no definitive record There's no registry of assets. But now, blockchain is being used for that. And since a blockchain can't be altered without leaving a permanent record, you can't forge a land title. You can't give yourself someone else's property. Now, that's a great thing if you're a landowner. Perhaps not so great if you're a corrupt official. So although projects to put land title on the blockchain have been announced in several countries... They've mostly stalled, and that's not because the technology isn't ready. This isn't a particularly strange use of blockchain, but it does point to one of the big reasons to use blockchain. Blockchains can help decrease corruption, and anything that decreases corruption, it, it tends to encounter resistance. Now, there are, on the other hand, cases where decreasing corruption is in the interests of the powerful. For example insurance. Now, at the end of the last episode, I mentioned that my home was robbed and I had several thousand dollars of valuable Bitcoin stolen because they were sitting in my smartphone. But that was far from the worst of it. This was no smash and grab operation. This thief was a professional, got in through the second story window and went room to room to room, systematically looting all of the valuables in my home. Now, I'm a bit of a geek, so there were plenty of smartphones and computers and other forms of portable wealth that are very easy to sell. And so the thief stole fifteen or $20,000 worth of my gear. That number's a bit fuzzy because, while well, there's no registry of my assets. I never kept one. Now, I am insured. When I contacted my insurer, they asked me to provide proof of ownership for all of the items stolen so they could be replaced. I did my best, scoured my home for slips of paper. I trolled through my emails for electronic receipts. I ended up spending a few days trying to prove what I had owned until the thief stole it. And there were some things I just had to give up on. They were too hard to locate. Those were my losses. Other things I had replaced after I provided proof of ownership. The insurance company requires proof of ownership to prevent insurance fraud because people do claim for things they don't own. That sort of thing happens all the time. But isn't this just the sort of thing that would be better handled by a registry of my assets? Something like that has been thought of purely as the province of the very rich people with tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in assets. Because it takes time to compile that register, to audit it, to check its authenticity, to ensure all of it. That's an expensive proposition, so it was only available to the wealthy. the The blockchain makes that all cheap and easy. After all, it's just data. It can be anywhere. It can be on your smartphone or in the cloud or sitting with your insurer. Your insurer wants to know all about all your assets, not only because it helps you make claims on those assets, but it also helps the insurer predict the kinds of claims it might see if a lot of customers file claims at once. For example, if there's a bushfire or a flood or a tropical cyclone or an earthquake. And you want to keep a list of your own assets. It's good to know what you own both because it helps you track your wealth and because it means that you might want to recycle or even upcycle assets you're not using. And right now, it's just hard to do all of this. A blockchain is easy to create, but populating it with all of your assets, that is time-consuming. But it needn't be that way, and this is where we get a real sense of the world of cryptonomics over the next few years. Because within the next few years, whenever you make a significant purchase... Let's say it's more than $100. You'll receive an electronic receipt that you will be able to forward along to your asset registry. It'll be put into your own personal blockchain and shared with the businesses who need access to that data, such as your insurer. All of that will happen pretty much automatically. You won't have to do anything. And then if you do need to make a claim, you and your insurer both have copies of that in your asset blockchain. They'll be in agreement because that's what the blockchain does. It keeps everything added up. So you can easily prove that you own what you say you own and the insurance company can believe you. Benefits both parties because they really don't have any reason to trust one another. The customer believes the insurer is trying to get out of paying claims and the insurer believes the customer is trying to commit fraud. Blockchain takes all of the distrust out of that relationship. Now, there are other cases where distrust is downright dangerous. For example, in all of our smart devices. Now, all of us own smartphones. Most of us own cars that use very sophisticated software to manage their performance. And more and more software is being used to provide autonomous features in automobiles so they can drive themselves. These features are very limited right now. Your Tesla can do a fine job on the highway in perfect conditions. Can't handle city traffic. Still, you want to be sure that you're using the best software when your car is driving itself. After all, you're putting your life in the hands of whoever wrote that software. But how do you know that that software is authentic? How do you know that the software running your Tesla came from Tesla, or the software in your iPhone really came from Apple? It all comes down to trust. Now, here's where a blockchain can help, though it's not quite enough. You can have a copy of a blockchain you got from Tesla that tells you this software is exactly what they promised you. But how do you know that someone hasn't hacked into Tesla and sent along a phony blockchain? That's when you need to use one of the techniques of the Bitcoin trading system, peer review. What if you download the Tesla blockchain and then compare that blockchain against every other Tesla on the road? Now, why would you do that? Well, it might be easy for a hacker to break into the computers at Tesla and swap out a real blockchain for a phony one. That they'd find it really hard to do it at Tesla and at every one of the hundreds of thousands of Teslas on the road. And this is a version of the consensus system that Bitcoin uses to ensure that changes in the ledger are legitimate. Because the traders in the Bitcoin network don't trust one another. They need to reach consensus before changes are made. And that same technique That can be used by a car or by your smartphone to keep it from installing malicious software. Now, back in 2015, Samsung, who is the biggest maker of smartphones in the world, they went into partnership with IBM, and IBM's been doing a lot of work in blockchain. They decided to work together to pioneer a blockchain-based system that would help ensure these software updates are as secure as can be using blockchain and consensus. Within a few years, every time you update your devices, whether your car or your smartphone or your television set or whatever else, you'll be able to trust that that update won't be used by a hacker to steal control of your device or steal your passwords or steal your bank accounts or turn your automobile into a guided missile. In a connected world, this may be the single most important application for blockchain, It will be mostly invisible. Most people will never know it's there, but it will be there underneath, ensuring software updates remain safe and secure in the years to come. But there's another way we can be hacked, and it's among the oldest known to man, and it's the most dangerous. When we come back from the break, we'll see what a blockchain can do for that. cryptonomics. I want to talk about another kind of security we'll be getting from the blockchain. Now, to do that, I'm going to tell a story, and I'm going to leave out all of the names because the story is true. Now, a few years ago, I was invited to consult to the newly appointed chief technical officer of a very big company here in Australia, and I was appointed to consult along with several other people that I knew and I respected. We spent two days working closely with this person, and the closer we got, the more confused I became. It seemed as though they didn't really have a strong grasp of technology. Not stupid, just, just not the kind of depth I would have expected from someone in their role. I've worked with people in similar roles and always found them to be outstanding minds and outstanding communicators. This person seemed to have neither of those qualities. Now, I imagined that their strengths lay in management. They must have a real human touch. After the session, I conferred with my colleagues. They agreed with me. Something didn't quite add up. Less than a year later, the truth came to light. Very suddenly, this person lost their job without explanation. Now, within a few days, it all became clear. They'd faked their qualifications. They'd lied about their credentials. It's one of the oldest stories in the world. The trick of the confidence man who puts up a great front, seems to have the bona fides to prove it, and then gets away with it until they get caught. Sometimes that takes minutes. Sometimes that takes years. Now, you would think in this day and age, with it being such a senior role, candidates would be vetted very carefully. Likely they were. Likely they just arranged the right trail of credentials and referees who are also in on the deception to fool whoever was making the decision to award them the role. Fraud isn't just something that happens at land registries or in insurance or in software downloads. People use fraud to promote themselves as something they're not. One of the reasons people get away with this kind of fraud is that it's very hard work to vet someone thoroughly. For example, to check if someone has a degree or credential from an institution, you often have to send the institution a written request, and it can take weeks to get a response. So people don't bother, they accept whatever credentials they're presented with. Now that works both ways. Because not only is it hard to vet candidates, It's also difficult for people who have legitimately earned credentials to show other people that they have those credentials, particularly when those credentials were earned overseas. And the universities, they're aware of this. They're aware that their value in the future comes from their reputation and their ability to distill that reputation into a degree or a certification. Okay, so how can they make what they provide easy to verify and to prove? using the blockchain. Australia's universities are already hard at work on a system that will move all of their credentialing to a blockchain so that anyone can check to see if someone's credentials are valid. And this is where we need to get a bit deeper in our understanding of a blockchain. Now, within the Bitcoin blockchain, anyone can add entries to the ledger as long as they have the consensus agreement of every other Bitcoin trader. Now, you might not want that on a blockchain with university credentials. You might want to make it so that only the universities can add credentials to the blockchain, but anyone can see those credentials. This is known as a permissioned blockchain because you need permission to add to the ledger. Bitcoin doesn't require permission. It only requires consensus. Consensus is permission. Now, in this case, Australia's universities would have permission, but normal people wouldn't. So you wouldn't simply be able to add your own credentials to this blockchain. You'd have to go through an accredited institution. Now, that assumes that these institutions trust each other. And, eh, you know, at one level, sure they do. But all it takes is one individual at one institution making unauthorized additions to these credentials to completely destroy the integrity of the system. So it may very well be that the universities will use a consensus algorithm amongst themselves before any of them can add credentials to the blockchain. They have to agree to a change by a majority vote. And that's an extra layer of safety that prevents any act from any single individual ruining it for everyone now once this blockchain exists university graduates will be able to quickly and inexpensively verify their university credentials that's great That won't prevent folks from faking credentials. People like to make themselves look bigger and better than they are. That's only natural. And lately, we have platforms like LinkedIn that make it easy to look both better than you are and to share that around. Now, in the long term, that's not actually good for LinkedIn. It's being polluted by fake credentials. And and that means people will stop trusting it. So LinkedIn, LinkedIn will likely adopt and plug into this blockchain of credentials and offer verified credentials. People will have verified credentials in their profiles, and they'll stand out against credentials that haven't been verified. And that will help keep the con men in check. Over the course of the episode, we've used blockchains in a range of ways. For land, for assets, software updates, university degrees, paying for grain... Our daily lives will be threading all of these blockchains together. Our personal data is about to become a series of blockchains. Some of them will be private and personal. Some will be public. Some will be a mix of the two. These blockchains together will become a proof of identity. That's a good thing. When I was robbed, my wallet was stolen. I lost all my credit cards. I had to start over. Fortunately, the thief hadn't found my passport. That was the one thing I absolutely needed to restart my life. If the thief had stolen that too, I'd have to have started again from a birth certificate, a process that could have taken months instead of days because I couldn't prove who I was. In the world of cryptonomics, we're building those proofs all the time with everything we buy, and everywhere we live, and everything we learn. All of it builds into a proof of who we are. Something that can't be stolen, something that can't be forged or copied and used by someone else. Something that resists identity theft. The world of proof is the world of blockchain. Bitcoin is interesting, but it's nothing next to this, because this aspect of blockchain will touch nearly every point of our lives. We'll be using blockchains all the time to help manage our lives and to help the world to understand us. And this world is already here. Writer William Gibson once wrote, the future is already here, it's just not here evenly distributed. With AgriDigital, we can see how this new world is transforming agriculture. That's the leading edge of a new world of proof that will transform almost everything. On the next episode of Cryptonomics, we dive into the frenzy of tokens and initial coin offerings. A recent report in Bloomberg showed that half of all token offerings are worthless after six months. We'll uncover what to look for and what to avoid. That's on the next episode of Cryptonomics. If you want to learn more about the topics we've explored in this episode, or learn more about our guest Emma Weston and her firm AgriDigital, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.